Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Uh, Mark Falkus. Mark, thank you so much for doing this. There's a bright sunlight beaming in behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you and how are you? Yeah, well, I'm in the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, I work down at the University of Otago in a place called Dunedin, but I'm a little bit further up the coast, uh, just near Christchurch at the moment. It's our summer. We've just come out of uh, teaching and examinations and so forth, so it's a nice time of the year for me. Lovely. And as you know, I begin these things by asking people what's in their thinking at the moment, what's on their mind, what's preoccupying Mark at this point. Mm, it's, a, it's a great question. Lots of things are swirling around in my mind, mm. from politics to economics to uh, uh, research and teaching. Uh, this time of the year is where I'm able to turn to my research, actually. It's a nice time of the year because uh, campus empties out and, um, as I said, teaching and examinations are done and so forth. So the moment, what I'm really focusing on in my writing is looking at questions around narratives of nation. Narratives and, uh, of nation. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a phrase that comes from Stuart Hall. I mean, just to hook into the cultural studies theme, of course. And as you know, my research um, and teaching focuses on sport and sport as a site, which is... Uh, you know, produced by and productive of bigger sets of forces, cultural, political, economic, cultural, etc. Um, and so um, I've ended up writing a little bit about the questions of nationalism. And nationalism is really interesting to me because, of course, we're born into nations and they seem to be natural, normal, inevitable in terms of their sort of armatures. Um, I've been in New Zealand for 20 years. And so um, to teach and research here, I need to understand that for a framework to... Um, you know, to to do what I do as far as engaging with my students and also writing into the social sport in New Zealand. So I've got a series of projects which are looking at the, the entanglements of sport with the constructions of the idea of uh, of the nation, the New Zealand nation specifically, as that changes and morphs and evolves in the sort of contemporary moment. So that's I've what's never... on my mind right now. Oh, great. I've never been there, but I know enough to know that rugby union is the sport and specifically male rugby union. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that gets to the heart of one of my projects, actually, which I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a bit of details about. Yeah, um, great. Yeah, it's historically occupied this domineering presence. And, and we're in a point of flux. There was, there was, there was shift and change in, in sort of small measure occurring. And actually rugby union in this country uh, hosted the Women's World Cup last year and the New Zealand team actually won. It was a big media moment, a spectacle, and sort of fated in the press at the time as something that was going to be, uh, you know, uh, the phrase they tend to use is a game changer, you know, a game changer um, uh, for women's sport and women's rugby and so forth. But historically, of course, there was there was male rugby um, entrenched in the nation as, as the sort of national sport. And, of course, that enwraps and entangles a whole series of historical, economic, political, cultural forces. So some of my work is actually looking at that. I'm interested in this concept of the idea of the mythscape. And it's a term that uh, British sociologist uh, uses, Duncan Bell, um, which really gets to this idea of thinking about how recollections of the past uh, are entangled with power relations. And so, so this speaks into some of the debates in, in the history discipline around um, sort of deconstructionist approaches to thinking about, you know, what is remembered and how power works through that. So I've been do, do, doing a project with a colleague of mine here, which looks at the way in which um, rugby's past in this country 
is remembered in ways that evokes particular versions of the nation. Um, there was a lot going on historically in this country with rugby union, and in particular, the entanglement with apartheid South Africa was a sort of very potent force. Yes, in that regard. Um, so we're doing a project looking at the way in which a particular mythscape is entrenched around rugby in terms of what its social meanings and relevance uh, uh, are or were, and then the way we get particular recollections of that uh, in contemporary popular writing around rugby, mm. which tend to erase a lot of the uh, what you what are now considered the problematic dynamics of rugby, which but which at one point were the celebrated dynamics. Um, so that's one project I'm looking at that. Which uh, which sort of um, starts to interrogate the way in which particular versions of the nation through the idea of rugby histories get get evoked and celebrated, and other things get erased or redacted or silenced. Um, so that's one particular project I'm looking at, which sort of coalesces around this idea of a narrative of nation. Well, can I ask um, you something in particular about that before you go on? Fire to away, the yeah. Next bit, and please correct me as I make what will be numerous errors of both fact and interpretation, if one can distinguish those two cousins. My recollection is that New Zealand became a really dominant rugby power in the 1960s, or certainly was a dominant rugby power. And it was pretty much an all-white team. Mm -hmm. But part of the on-field preparation, prolegomenon to struggles, was the haka, which was a a sort of indigenous war cry or statement. Performance. performance. A performance appropriated yeah. by white people. And now it seems as though, as is the case in Britain, it is no longer by any means an all-white sport. And you see many representatives of the New Zealand rugby team over decades now, I think, who are of Pacific Island heritage of different kinds, and so is that right? And what does that signify about some kind of transformation in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. And this, this, this story gets right to the heart of some of the complexities around the entanglements of something like rugby with the nation's cultural politics. And there has always, there has actually historically been a Maori presence in rugby union right from its origins in this country. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, so and, and the way that that gets negotiated in, in terms of a sort of national narrative, of course, is to evoke the idea of inclusiveness and the game being a great social equaliser. But I think as your question is sort of pointing out, of course, it was historically overwhelmingly a white settler game. And it was white settler in the sense that it, uh, of course, had roots in Britain, but comes to this country and is very much... Um, shifted and adapted to fit local circumstance which is a little bit more egalitarian than the rigid class divides of britain they're very successful at playing the game and in particular beating the former colonial master <laughs> the english and so then then the game becomes a powerful and a potent force of asserting you know a, a new vision of nationhood and that sort of settler colonialism hooks on very tightly to rugby in that regard and they play against the other white settler colonies and is successful against them, South Africa, Australia in particular, and they play the home nations and so forth. But of course, it's a primarily an overwhelmingly male domain. It's overwhelmingly white, but there is a Maori presence right from the outset. Um, and that Maori presence gets, and people like Brendan Hockafita have written in really useful ways about this, actually. Um, that presence, of course, gets enwrapped in a sort of nationalist myth, which celebrates the game and celebrates the Maori presence ostensibly 
um, as, as indicative of the inclusivity of the game and by association, hence the nation, right? If this is your key national institution that you hook your national identity on, then, then it becomes a key sort of symbol of the nation writ large. So that presence, the, the Maori presence in the game gets negotiated overwhelmingly in terms of the sort of white settler resonances of the game more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, there are also slightly separate histories of Maori rugby as well, more sort of subaltern approaches, I guess you could call them. Um, and then in recent decades, the Polynesian presence in the game does radically increase. And again, there's some there's some writing on that. I wrote in the in a journal, the Contemporary Pacific, about this, about the browning of the New Zealand game, and says that's created new narratives around the place of the game and how the game is understood, and some fears and some moral panics about the idea of the browning of the game and white kids being pushed out of the game because of big Polynesian bodies and so forth that resonate into sort of racialized interpretations of performance. Um, so you're right in your question that the, 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 the way the game looks on the field, like literally looks, um, does mirror a series of shifts as the, mm. um, as, as, as the country uh, changes and, and new waves of um, what you might call third wave immigration shift the game and change the game. And then, of course, the narratives have to shift and adapt around that in a series of interesting ways. Now, now what I think is a very subordinate sport, but I guess dominant in summer, is cricket. And it seems to me that there are some South Asian immigrant families that over the years have produced cricketers for New Zealand slash Aotearoa. But other than that, it looks to me like it's still a completely white sport at the national level, by contrast with rugby. Is that right? Yes, that, that is correct. And again, I think that's a really fascinating case study. If you think about cricket, um, of course, as a, as a deep carrier of culture, mm. it, it's probably the archetypical sort of British sport evoking the idea of Britishness and connections back in terms of the colonial context in New Zealand. Um, you have to look, so it's been overwhelmingly white. I mean, historian Greg Ryan's written about cricket in this country and, and, and it really exists as the sport which has the least amount of uh, Maori uh, representation, even until very, very, very recently, and then more recently, like you just pointed out, we get the emergence of some um, Asian New Zealanders present in the national teams and so forth. But that's still at a fairly low level. Um, so you'd have to look at a sport like softball, actually, as the flip side of the coin to cricket as a bat and ball sport, which is overwhelmingly Maori Polynesian. Is it? And it's a very, very different sort of cultural space relative to the white dominated clubs, cricket clubs, which, you know, premised on particular codes of etiquette and whites, you know, dressing in, in whites and all those sorts of things. So, of course, they evoke very different cultural spaces. And think you, you've got to contrast, I think, the likes of softball with cricket to really understand the dynamics of what's going on with, oh. with a sport like cricket. Now, I'm thinking here of the English case, because that's the one I guess I'm familiar with from my upbringing, where... 40 years ago, there were lots of black-descended first-class and test cricketers for England, and now there are virtually none. And the English cricket team is absolutely dominated by privately educated young men. Mm -hmm. And in the on the women's side, I don't know about the class background, but in racial terms, it's very much the same, Yeah. And certainly in men's cricket in England, class remains a key exclusionary factor along with racism, institutionalised and interpersonal and 
you know, there are new reports coming out, it seems, all the time mm -hmm, about, mm -hmm. you know, Yorkshire, first of yeah. all, and now Essex, County Cricket Clubs, and the way in which there was terrorization of Black and South Asian cricketers. But apart from the, the terrorizing of people, it's very clear that there is just a class blockage. Now, I'm going to jump in here and give an, an Anglo interpretation, which is that apart from institutionalized racism, apart from personal attitudes, a big thing in this is Thatcher selling off playing fields of government schools as part of the wholesale privatization of things in order to bring in enough cash for one generation to maintain public services whilst keeping taxes low. And so that, in a sense, denial of a responsibility to physical education for young working class people has had cross-generational impacts. Anyway, this is my sort of invitation to discuss, but by all means, tell me I'm wrong and by all means, talk about the New Zealand context. Um, it's interesting. You should mention that. I mean, I could go any direction here. I grew up, I was born in 1973 in, in Northwest England, not too far from Yorkshire, which you mentioned. And I I played cricket very little, um, mainly because of the connotations of the social class environment. I came from really a sort of, uh, my family had a very much of a working class background. Um, so in terms of the New Zealand case, I think um, I haven't done specific work looking at New Zealand cricket, but I knew, do know what's been written about it. Um, like I said, historian Greg Ryan's written about the overwhelming whiteness of um, of of cricket in New Zealand. Now, the class basis is really interesting because there is something to be said about New Zealand as a white settler colony that, that is constructed in a way in which class is still prevalent, but possibly provides lesser barriers in the context of sport and environments because of smaller populations and the nature of the philosophies which sort of underpinned early New Zealand uh, settlers. So overwhelmingly male, and I don't want to present it in an overly romanticised way, but there are historians who've written about New Zealand as a site which was perhaps less characterised by social class um, divides in the context of sort of sports environments. Then, but nonetheless, cricket still emerges as overwhelmingly a white sport and is still very much rooted in, if not the private schools, the privileged boys' schools. So there is a boys' school system in this country which um, is really ostensibly sort of a... Um, an open, um, uh, what I would call a, 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 a public system, not public schools, uh, and, and there are private schools alongside that, which would be key bastions which would promote cricket and develop cricket and so forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's probably the sort of um, what you might call the uh, the breeding ground, if you like, of the the, the cricket. Um, um, the cricket environment in New Zealand, which provides a slightly different terrain to the UK, which you mentioned. And I think your analysis is quite spot on about that's right, Britain and the limitations of what was done um, and, and the consequences of that down the generations. Um, and in this environment, it works. it's working with slightly different dynamics, but similar types of effects as far as the exclusivity in the game like cricket. Wow. So there is a way in which we can see these sports being blown up in the last 25 years. Rugby was, in many parts of the world, a Protestant, white, male domain and amateur, whereas Catholics 
within that British imperial fold might play rugby league because it was professional. And you see that with, you know, non-wealthy Irish descended Catholics, for example, in Australia playing rugby league, whereas mostly Protestant private school educated young men would play rugby union. But these things collide with the professionalization of rugby union what, 25 years ago, something like that? Maybe a bit Yeah, 1995, yep, 30 1995, years. So almost 30. And the slow decay of rugby league, uh, such that it's a very provincial activity now, uh, by contrast. And uh, that's a dramatic change. In cricket, there's a dramatic change because what once was the plaything of white racial formations is now the plaything of India internationally, mm-hmm. who run everything. You mentioned big Pacific Islander bodies and stereotypes. Beyond that, English professional rugby players and French professional rugby players are much bigger than ever before. There are mm-hmm. many more injuries. There's probably much more steroid abuse. And there are horrendous instances of cerebral damage that so I wondered if you could comment on those things. Is this massive corporate commodification of rugby producing something and, and and of cricket in the Indian context taking over the world? Are these transformations things to worry about? Are they beneficial? <laughs> are they breaking apart racial yeah. domination? Or are they just, you know, the colour of money? Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and you're right, of course. And you, you wrote about this. I mean, I'm thinking of your, correct me, your book, 2000 book, Globalisation of Sport. Uh, and that shift in terrain in terms of that sort of hyper-commodification, globalisation, all those things wrapped into what was becoming of sport at that point, And that has only kind of accelerated. The The... The case of Indian cricket is really interesting. And David Rowe, you, you know David Rowe well, has written about this. And he talks about this idea of a sort of a um, a post-Westernisation um, sort of effect in, in the context of cricket and the rise of the IPL and that becoming an economic centre that now attracts in players from the West, which is really interesting because the elite New Zealand players go and play in um, in India in the IPL because, of course, what's on offer contractually. And that, but that... That box the trend compared to, of course, many sports and the more sort of westernised kind of um, dynamics of how they are working. So I think the IPL is a really interesting model to look at. Um, this in is reshaping a, just to interrupt for a moment. This is the Indian Premier League. Sorry, yes, yeah, which is yeah. a short form of hyper commodified, made for television cricket that lasts about as long as a baseball match and mm-hmm. was actually derived from an English model, but the Indians picked it up and took it and ran with it and operates on a an auction system whereby players put their names in for an auction. It's a bit like a draft, but diff- operates differently from the US model and they get bought for certain amounts and that money goes to them as their salary essentially, or they're not bought. They play this very short form, and that model has become an international one. So there's a Caribbean version, 
mm-hmm. an Australian version, a Bangladesh version, a Pakistan version, I think, right? And what's come with this is that the supposed ruling body internationally, which was the plaything of England and Australia, is now the creature of India. Mm-hmm. And, and it's fascinating. And I think cricket in that sense is a sport which, of course, is in this state of turmoil because the economic forces have created new versions of the game that can thrive commercially, at least. But then, of course, you've got these legacies and this struggle within the game because you've got essentially three versions of cricket right now. You've got T20, the short versions you just mentioned, the one-day game, and then the five-day game, mm. which, of course, resonates into the you know the histories of the game between uh, the big nations and in particular sort of England versus Australia in the ashes and those sorts of things. But the game is really struggling because commercially that five-day version is a struggle in today's sort of formulas of commercial media spectacle. Um, So I think cricket's really interesting. I teach this in in my class and, 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 you know, that I teach at the University of Otago just about the complexities of those struggles between different versions of the games. And it had roots, of course, in the 70s when Kerry Packer came in with uh, World Series cricket. You'll you'll know this example, um, and so sports are site of contestation and struggle in that regard. And there are many other sports. The same played out in rugby union as far as the way that commercial pressures eventually forced the professionalisation of the game in 1995, at least in, in terms of rugby union. No, um, oh sorry, you're far away, Toby. Oh well, no, go ahead, go ahead, please. Oh, I just wanted to just speak into what you also mentioned in your in your question about rugby union, and then the sort of commercialization hyper commodification of the game and where it has led us to as far as you know player welfare um in in the context of this emerging media spectacle and like you say the game has huge huge problems because it damages people's brains and and the research on that is is starting to you know build up and build up and so on what is interesting to me and i think this is would be would be a useful thing to, to look at of course is the way it's so deeply entrenched in terms of the cultural narratives which valorise the game, um, the way you get all sorts of machinations around how the question around concussion and bodily damage start to be explained away in the context of such deeply entrenched ideas of this sport being so important to the nation and so on. And so I think that's the thing to watch over over the next few years, the way in which we get particular sorts of discussions. I'm thinking of the discussions in the context of something like the NFL as well, and the way the concussion issue gets addressed, you know, in media discourse and and in with with sort of thinking, saying, well, we can just find new technologies which can allow us to keep the game the same, or create new new monitoring and new helmets and those sorts of things. And in rugby, that's a little bit more complicated. And there are now legal cases being brought against the rugby union authorities. And there's some research in recent years which has you know suggested that players are having up to sort of eight surgeries across a career. So these are these are damaged and bruised bodies. Uh, and, and, you know, neurologically, as far as concussions and brain damage, you've got people now in their 40s with early onset dementia, international, former international rugby players. So I suspect the legal cases are going to start to bring this to a um, um, to a head. And then, of course, at the moment, you've got authorities which are starting to play around with the tackle heights uh, regulations. The rugby league in England actually just changed their rules for next year. It's interesting watching social media responses to that terrain um, over the last few days since they announced it this last week. Um, you know, you get a very, very kind of quick response from those who are so entrenched in their love and passion for the game and so forth that see this as a threat. 
a threat. It's the softening mm-hmm. of the game. You know, I've read all these things this week. It's the softening of the game. And it's this woke, you know, it's the woke idea. Yeah, that, well, I remember when, when I lived in Australia, mm. uh, my father was Australian. There was a thing called the Hard Men of League, which did not right. go to erections, at least not directly. <laughs> <laughs> But to this idea, and obviously it was connected very much to a sexualized masculinity of guys who could take a hit and give a hit and get up and keep playing. Um, we were talking yes. before we started recording about Jim Mackay. Jim wrote this wonderful book in 1991, No Pain, No Gain. Yep, yep, no, well, yeah. That, you're right. That really explodes some of these myths. So this makes me go back to your biography, if I may. I have to ask you, you grew up in the Northwest, working class lad. So did you up in a rugby league town or a football town? A rugby league town. So my father comes from Wigan. uh, And my mother comes from about 10 miles down the road in a place called St. Helens. And there's a big rivalry between those two towns. So I grew up with that, yeah. So very much rugby league, although latterly... The Wigan football team did very well for a time. They've they had a decade the at the top, yep. Yeah. Well, they won. Yep. Did they win the FA Cup, maybe? They did win the FA Cup. They beat Man City. Yeah. I can see a lot of pleasure coursing through your veins, sir, as you say that. So growing up with Rugby League, which, just to give a bit of context for people, was a professional northern breakaway from the southern rugby union world in Britain is very like rugby union, but there are 13 players instead of 15. And it was a more interesting attacking version of rugby union because there was less kicking. Because Yeah, you... because the rules were rules right from 1895 when the two games split away. Yeah. The rules were adapted to be more spectator-friendly. More spectator-friendly. Because it was professionalised, it, it, you know, it developed in that sort of along the lines of sort of spectacle as opposed to rugby union, which was very entrenched in, in amateurism and, and the public school kind of uh, domains that were its its um, strongholds. Yeah. So when I said earlier that rugby league was in its death throes, I did see a slight rictus of discomfort across your face. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, well, well, it's interesting because if you look at commercial rugby league in Australasia, which is obviously where I'm based, it's a powerhouse that what's called the NRL now used to be called the ARL. Then, before then, it was called the New South Wales Rugby League. And again, that's a good study in the sort of mm. geographical expansion and through this phase of hyper-commodification. Um, it's it's not dying anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, but it, I mean, it doesn't seem to get very big TV audiences other than this thing, State of Origin, which yeah, is right. yeah. A, yeah. a regional contest in Australia between players from Queensland and New South Wales. And but it has expanded to have New Zealand teams in this national this misnomer national rugby league competition. Correct, uh, yeah. Which is sort yeah, of interesting. Yeah, yeah franchising Auckland since nineteen ninety five. Um I guess it's really interesting to me because um the, you know, there's a lot written, of course, as you know, about the sort of commodification of sport. And it gives us this impression that sport, of course, has this um, steamroller-like quality once it takes on all of this armature as far as sort of commercial spectacle, media mm-hmm. priorities, mm-hmm. big sponsors and so forth. But the the cultural terrain, the complications of the cultural terrain mean that it's not inevitable. You know, so sports franchises and expansion will come and go and it will shift and change according to 
to market. So um, the New Zealand franchise in the NRL at the moment is actually been quite successful last year. Um, but it's you know this is the vicissitudes of sport. Sometimes uh, you know it takes success on the field or a particular set of circumstances to really uh, make something kind of um, catch a hold and catch a fire, so to speak. So um, yeah, we'll we'll watch this space. It's um, rugby union. There's a lot of fears in this country about rugby union, and again, this speaks into some of the work I've done writing about rugby union in this country. Because if it's used as a barometer to the nation, when the game, the national game is so-called struggling or in crisis, because, for example, you've got this question around concussion or you've got them not doing very well on the field as the All Blacks, you know, the national men's team that, that you'd be aware of, um, then suddenly the the the, uh, the panic is on around the national game and what's wrong with the game. And you get into this sort of um, uh, discourse of decline. And um, so... Um, all of these things will play out in complicated ways. If I can just loop back into my own biography, is that okay? Please do. It's actually interesting. Um, this is how I really got interested in cultural studies approaches to thinking about sport, because uh-huh. where, when I grew up, I grew up playing rugby union in what was an old grammar school in the northwest of England. Um, can you explain so what, grammar we played school, rugby... what grammar schools were and to a certain extent are for listeners? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, far away. Yeah, I understand it's an international audience. So the, the grammar school was a state school, but was meant to provide the kind of education for academically gifted young people, mostly young boys, that you would get at what in Britain is called a public school, which is a sort of school I went to, which is not a state school. It's called a public school because ho, 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 it's available to all members of the public, unlike state schools, which are orchestrated around particular regions where one lives. Public schools were open if you had the the filthy money, right? And the grammar school was meant to be the place where bright young people could get a leg up and probably go to university. But they were deemed to be unsuccessfully meritocratic and still very class-based and were to a certain extent done away with by fairly progressive Labour Party policies. Just to give that bit yeah. of context. No, they that's a good, privileged, that's a good overview. The privilege so And it's a, this is a really good example of how, how sports are carried, of, of the kind of things that you just mentioned, because, of course, particular sports were played in schools like grammar schools, and they all aped the private school ethos and model. And so, so the school I went to, we played rugby union. So oh. I would play that game on a Saturday, um, and I would go I'd travel around some of the elite private schools in the northwest of England doing that because um, that's who we played against. Right. And we were quite a decent team and we played against all these elite private schools. The following day on the Sunday, because I kind of had working class roots in, in watching rugby league, I would be in towns like Halifax, Widnes, um, <laughs> Wigan. Lee, these are these are sort of at the point. This is like the 1980s. These were sort of post-industrial um, I wouldn't say hell holes, but you know they weren't. They were the products of Thatcher's Britain, and they were um, not. There were towns filled with terraced houses of the likes that um, George Orwell writes about in *The Road to Wigan Pier*. If if anyone's ever read that famous book, but the spectacle on the field was surrounded by these working class fans. And it was this carnivalesque kind of atmosphere and environment, um, and the game was professional, and 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 it was parochialism, and it was you know excitement and carnival like i said and um, so i grew up in these two different worlds on a saturday i was in one world on a sunday i was in a completely different world and 
both had their appeals and both had their problems. Um, and so I grew up with this very acute sense that there's two different worlds out there and sport really was the key sort of dividing line through which you experience these and these were played out and enacted. Uh, you know, I'd be having cucumber sandwiches after a game on a Saturday and then it would be a pie on the Sunday and they're right there in their sort of, <laughs> you know, at those sorts of levels, you're just living <laughs> different worlds. So, yeah. Um, Class culture bit... really expressed itself to you every winter weekend. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I, so I grew up with that and then ended up going to university and doing sort of sports studies degree. And um, then it was the sociology of sport, of course, that suddenly gave me the tools to make sense of and start to understand those things. And then, you know, social justice sort of um, uh, ethic, I guess, helped me gravitate towards a cultural studies kind of approach because it's power focused. And um, that's what I wanted to um, sort of um to pursue to allow me to make sense of these kind of environments that I've grown up in, and um, that was that was the lens that it gave me. Well, Mark, so that was that was that's a little biography in terms of uh, no, you know, that, how that I is, to look at sport in this way. A wonderful, wonderful encapsulation. I've got a couple of more questions to throw at you, and then um, I'd like to. Sorry, the cat has found a piece of silver paper, which he's made into a ball. <laughs> And he is now racing around the apartment indiscriminately with the ball. And then after these couple of questions I've got for you, to ask you whether there are things we haven't discussed that you'd like to mention, maybe more about your projects. So the first of my two preliminary questions, as it were, prior to handing over to you, is to ask whether you could tell us a bit more about your publications and how they start I guess as a graduate student, and then on from there. And I'm I'm familiar with your work, but it may be there are people here uh, who are not so familiar. And you maybe you could share with us a little bit about things you've written, collaborations you've been involved with, and where people might find this material. Yeah, no problems. Um... It's interesting. I was a I was a grad student in Canada. Actually, I went to Queen's University for my master's degree in the mid nineties, and the big topic at the time was globalization. That was kind of the um, uh, you know a concept that was, was the buzz term of the time, and um, so I picked upon that and used that to actually write about um, British rugby league and the transitions it was undergoing at that time, which was all related with bigger media struggles on the other side of the world in Australia in relation to the game there that you've that you discussed before. So the 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 game I just mentioned that I grew up with was undergoing this radical transformation and there was resistance to that and it was contested. Um and I was using this sort of globalization framework to try and make sense of that, thinking about how you know the local game had suddenly become enwrapped in these bigger global um processes, forces, etc. So I put uh, I published some of that work and, and eventually then went to Loughborough University in the um, in the UK um, and for my PhD and I was working there with um, Joseph Maguire and you probably would know Joe over a series of years. And Joe was a figurational sociologist, so he was very interested in that that position using Norbert Elias, um, the idea of uh, figurations, process sociology, looking at the long jury. Um, and I eventually ended up looking at the globalization of um, of basketball, actually, in that project. I was there for three plus years 
and 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 publish that kind of work in a series of book chapters and also journals like the Sociology of Sport Journal and the International Review for the Sociology of Sport, which are kind of the core journals in the sociology of sport field. Um, and subsequent to that, um, oh I, yeah, just just a word on sort of what was going on theoretically around that time. Um, I was drawn to sort of cultural studies approaches and the, the work of the likes that you were doing at the time. Actually, you were writing about the cultural logics of late capitalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, with others like Jim McKay and David Rowe, and David Andrews was writing about late capitalism, and so I was really drawn to those sort of uh, neo-Marxist kind of perspectives. Um, but Joe, of course, was heavily into figurational sociology and influenced me in that way. And so I used some of the frameworks of established outsider relations and so on. And my PhD was a bit of a negotiation between those different theoretical perspectives. Yeah. And at that point in the sociology of sport, there was these sort of big theoretical camps which would de- argue and debate. And the positions and uh, that sort of really characterized the field. What camp are you in was the sort of framework. And cultural studies was interesting to me in that regard, because I've always what's always appealed to me is this idea of a detour via theory. And and so to me, theory is a is a tool you use to make sense of particular, um, um, you know, empirical examples, evidence, whatever, you, you, you know, what's going on in the lived, lived world. Um, it's not sort of an end in itself. And. And so I've always sort of maintained that approach the way I use social theory. Now, that might seem a little bit like theory light, um, but I, I, I think there's a bit of a fetishization of social theory in the social sciences. And people, it's always strange to me that people say, I'm a Marxist and, or, or something like that. My view would be, well, I, I use Marxist framework if it helps me to make sense of a particular set of questions and conundrums. And I'll use a different framework if it's useful and valuable to me, you know, given what I'm seeing. So I've used the likes of Pierre Bourdieu. Um, I've used, you know, obviously the likes of Gramsci, who coded influences at times, kind of inevitably, and other types of ideas as well um, on along this journey. Um, I then ended up working in Aotearoa, New Zealand from 2003 onwards. And then, of course, again, you're adapting your framework to think through the environment around you in terms of sport and physical culture. And so then thereafter, I've ended up writing about particular sort of New Zealand case studies. I've written about race in rugby, which I mentioned before. I've written about um, the media in particular and representation in the media. That's always interested me as a key institution. And again, that really comes from that cultural studies sensibility of thinking about ideology, narratives, um, and the way they swirl around and sort of operate within cultural context. And the sports pages are often, of course, something that's not taken particularly seriously as far as the way it operates to entrench particular sets of ideas, understandings, identities, belief systems, etc. So that's been a, a large focus of what I've, I've looked at. Um, I've written I've written other things as well with people like Michael Silk. I've written about um, sort of geopolitics and um, responses to 9-11. This is going back, obviously, a few decades in terms of US media and what was going on around that time. Again, it's just a question of how the, the sports media was culturally laden at the time and politically and economically entangled. Um, and then in recent years, I've started to shift towards writing about New Zealand nationalism and this idea of narratives of nation. Um, so that's, again, that appears in journals like the, the Journal of Sport and Social Issues, um, uh, yeah, Continuum, you know, other sort of social science, cultural studies journals. Um so, yeah, if anyone wants to contact me, I can flip them in the right direction. I've written about labour migration with Joe Maguire. We've we've produced a few books on that, a couple of edited collections that capture this idea of flows of people around the world because the, the globalisation framework never quite went away. 
Um, so thinking about the idea of labour migration as the movement of people, and of course that's contested and, and struggled over at the policy level in terms of identities, in terms of media representation. Um, in relation to what you talked about before, something like the Indian Premier League is about the, the control of the mobility of players, right? As a key sort of commercial resource. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a series of different angles I've taken at various times, different types of frameworks. Um, and I've written with various people as student, as I've encountered students. I'm lucky enough to get some very capable students. Um, and I really enjoy the fact that that can pull you in different directions um, when students you know, come to you. And a student of mine came from South Africa a few years ago. And he said, look, I'm really interested in apartheid in South Africa. And I learned a tremendous amount from him in terms of the way he was able to help me understand his experiences of, of, uh, of rugby in that country and how it entangles Africana. Uh, uh, sorry, Afrikaans nationalism in a whole variety of complicated ways. So that's been my journey in terms of thinking mm. about uh, my publications and then a sort of a theoretical journey, conceptual journey, and then specific topics, depending on where I am in the world. Um, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, that's great. I was going to ask you about uh, some of these narcissism of small differences, struggles between figurational folks and Marxist folks, but you've mm -hmm. done that for us. So my last question is actually to ask you about cultural studies in a couple of ways. One is to ask you in general what you see as its present and its future. And the other is to ask you about its role in the study of sports, given that Sports have not been central to, to cultural studies and perhaps vice versa. So the first part of the question is the field in general. And the second is its relationship to sports studies. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, interesting. I think the for me, the challenge for cultural studies is relevance. Yeah, it's relevance. Um, cultural studies doesn't, I mean, and, and there's been a, a fair amount written about cultural studies in within or sport within cultural studies by people like David Andrews, people like Sammy King, people like Susan Burrell, you know, um, yourself, others, um, that I think we really make a really, really strong case for the importance of sport within cultural studies. You want to understand, you know, culture, then sports right in the centre of that. So it's always been a little bit of a conundrum in academia. I think there is, is a little bit of a disdain in the social sciences towards looking at sport historically that's changed i think in recent years um i think there's a certain sort of intellectual elitism that sort of undergirds some of that so that sort of troubles me a little bit um but the, the question of relevance to me is the key and by relevance i mean the relevance of sort of cultural studies approaches to informing policy informing practice informing our teaching and and actually making a difference and contributing to the kind of world we live in and i think What's problematic to me is when cultural studies becomes an elitist kind of academic discourse um, that people can't engage with or is just sort of furnishing academics careers. I don't think that that's very helpful to anyone other than to those academics. I think it's anti-cultural studies if that's what cultural studies becomes, if that makes any sense. Um, because, you know, when we speak a language of social theory that's dense and verbose and privileged, then I think there's a tension point there for me with the impetus of cultural studies as it was sort of envisaged by the, you know, the original Birmingham 
voices and I'm pretty sure it's morphed and it's changed and as it should do um, it, as it's spread geographically and, and undergone a series of different sort of theoretical influences. So um, there's a few <laughs> a few ramblings if that sort of gets to the types of questions you're interested in. No, that was great. Thank you very much, Mark. So now to ask whether there's something you'd like to add that we haven't discussed or that you'd like to offer with reference to things we have mentioned. No, I don't I don't have burning issues really that I want to add to the conversation. Really, really interesting conversation. I want to thank you for this, Toby, because it's it's actually really interesting to sort of be able to just ramble about things like biography and then think through and connect that into the bigger sort of frameworks of how you encounter the field and you know what's going on theoretically and politically. I mean, people have written in interesting ways and people like Dave Andrews have been at the forefront of this yes. about sort of the threats to cultural studies approaches to sport. And I think you have to take that seriously. And he's written about the idea of physical cultural studies as a sort of niche approach. And there's a whole series of debates there, of course, you don't perhaps need to get into. But he fundamentally says in, in neoliberal universities that obviously the types of approaches that um, cultural studies scholars take, which are sort of focused on complicated arguments around the entanglements of sport and physical culture with a broader set of power dynamics, have never been more important but they've never been more under threat. That's fundamentally what Dave Andrews is is kind of arguing in some of the writing he's he's put out in the last few years. And I think we do have to take that very seriously. And, and when we're in our own institutions, we have to advocate for and fight for and lobby for our relevance and our presence. But I think we have to do that in clever ways, not just by banging our fist on the desk. I think we have to do that by picking the sorts of topics whereby we engage, for example, in the kind of department I work in with bioscientists. Uh, you know, and they're writing about the human body and its performance potentialities and its and, and questions of wellness and so on from biophysical, very reductive perspectives. And obviously we're anti-reductive. We're all interested in, you know, the, the infinite complexity of, you know, all the broader entanglements of how we might understand the moving body. And so I think we have to probably engage with those kind of folks in a way that we demonstrate our relevance to them, whether that be writing about, let's say, concussion, and demonstrating actually the cultural terrain, you know, they might look at forces of the way the, and I've got scholars I work with, you know, the forces on the brain in terms of head impacts and they're sort of developing mouth guards that have got chips in them and measure forces and those sorts of things. I think we have to advocate for our voices in that conversation um, and everything that that entails because, you know, we think that the cultural terrain is really powerful in shaping and patterning, let's say, how policies arrived or how even problems are identified or ignored. So I think we probably have to be quite smart in terms of advocating for what we do in that context. What doesn't tend to fly from my experience is naive critique, naive critique that's negative and destructive, but something that actually, um, you know, there is a naive critique of sport out there, for example, which just is fairly dismissive of sport. It's racist, misogynistic and so on. Um, you know, jocular masculinities and so on. And we can identify all of those things in terms of sport, but I think we also have to recognise the complexities of people's sport and experiences that actually also evoke a whole series of different things to that. And that's not to celebrate, you know, in a cheerleader-type manner sport, but to understand the complexities of how people uh, are maybe approaching it. I think if we do good cultural studies in that regard, we can sort of ensure our relevance. I think naive critique is probably my biggest problem or concern because it just ends up negative a negative framing of sport that's a sort of um a, a more destructive sort of frame 
for understanding it. Denouncing something that gives enormous pleasure to hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. So a good example. I mean, a lot of a lot of the social order sport has, you know, it's used critical perspectives and it's tended to be this this critique heavy perspective. But the pleasures of sport, a colleague of mine, actually, formerly in New Zealand, Richard Pringle, wrote about this a few years ago. And Hello, Mark. Mark has frozen. I mean, I hope not his person but his image and sound so i am going to stop the recording there